Hey there, and welcome to your weekly episode of I Didn't Sign Up For This with Allison Casanova and myself, Jade Shaw. We are both licensed marriage and family therapists here in the Bay Area of California. Whether you're a practitioner yourself or just interested in topics around mental health and therapy, join us here for some real and honest conversations. Please note that this podcast is not a replacement for therapy or medical advice. Any questions about your specific situation should be directed to your own therapist or primary care physician. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to episode 9.3. This is the addition to the Understanding Trauma episodes that we decided we needed because we wanted to jump into some more treatment approaches that we didn't get to talk about and maybe clarify some things that we missed in the first and second parts of Understanding Trauma. So today we want to start by talking about neuroplasticity and we'll get into what that is. And then we'll talk about different treatment approaches that therapists might use when treating trauma, as well as some things that you might be able to do on your own. We talked about that a little bit in the second part, but we'll go over some other things around that as well today. So since like the last two episodes, there's a lot of information. We're just going to dive right in. So neuroplasticity, this is important when we're talking about trauma because without neuroplasticity, I think treatments aren't really that effective, right? If our brains can't change, then it makes treatment hard. So neuroplasticity is basically your brain's ability to reorganize itself and create more connections sort of based on what your brain thinks that it needs. So I'm going to define a few things and get a little bit sort of sciencey here, but I hope by the end it will make more sense. So when talking about neuroplasticity, it's sort of important to know what neurons are. So neurons are cells within our nervous system that basically send messages to each other and to muscles and to gland cells. Those don't really matter, but it's basically the cells that communicate to each other. A neuron usually comprises of axons, a body, and dendrites. So you can think of axons as like the mouth of the cell. Those are the ones that are sending the messages and the dendrites. You can think of that as like the ears. So those are the things that are going to pick up the messages and transmit it to the body of that cell. So this is a very basic understanding of how our brain sends messages to other parts of our body so that we know what to do and how to respond. With that being said, if you've ever heard the term use it or lose it, that is basically what this is. If our brain thinks, oh, we're not using those cells or we're not using those lines of communication, we're just going to shut them down. We're not going to waste our time on them. Whereas if you're building those sort of roads of communication, they're going to get stronger. This is why we have things like muscle memory. So the more we practice something, the better we get at it. You can also, for gardeners out there, you can think of it as like when you prune your rose bush, when you don't need certain things on your plant, you just cut them off and get rid of them. So it's kind of what our brains do. 
I hope that gives sort of an understanding as to why the treatment approaches that we'll talk about are effective because when we're in therapy or when we're working with somebody and practicing different ways of coping and working to enhance the way that we're able to self-regulate, this is helping our brain to build those connections to tell our bodies how to respond to these stimuli that are triggers or these environments that maybe we're not comfortable in or don't know how to react in. So pretty much your experiences kind of help you form this plasticity in your brain. And like Jade said, you know, you use it or you lose it. There's also the other term, fire together, wire together. So when you have an experience that's not very good, and the things that are kind of around it that might remind you of it. That is why later on, if you kind of see those other things, it kind of, it, it reminds your brain of what is going on. And I realize that was very general, but let's say for example, when you're little, you were bitten by a dog and you were going maybe to the car. And so now perhaps you are, every time you see a car, you're kind of reminded of this and you kind of start to get really like in your body, a little scared, kind of like that. So if you are in a, in a really stressful situation, your brain takes the easiest path. So that is why if that kind of wire is already there, it's really easy to go back to your old habits. And Mm -hmm. so in order for you to create that new habit, that new wire, that's why practice and consistency is super important because that's what's going to help alter your brain and change the way that you're able to kind of move forward. So that's pretty much what neuroplasticity is. So you have these different things that you've learned from your experience in the world. And if you're needing to change something, that path is still going to be there, but you're going to kind of create another path on top, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's like taking a different way home. Mm -hmm. I think we all sort of have the standard way that we drive home and you can, it's really easy to get on autopilot and just take that way that you know, and it takes a little more focus to take a different route if you know there's a detour or something. That's a good example. And I think it I think this might be why a lot of times when you worked so hard in therapy or in any area of your life to do something different, to make that change, when you're stressed out, if you kind of go back, a lot of people get on themselves and they get really upset and they feel like they've taken a step backwards. But really, it's just your brain kind of going back to what it knew. And so that's why taking care of yourself and making sure that you're doing the things to help you manage the stress effectively is going to be what's going to help you get back on that different path that you want to be on. Mm-hmm. And I just love the idea of neuroplasticity because it really is so fascinating. I think we all sort of feel like, oh, you know, we're kind of stuck in our ways or this is how I learned things. But it's just so incredibly fascinating how we really can change our brains. Like physically it can change and we can learn new things. And there's a myth, right, that you only have this when you're younger, and that's not true. While the brain is has the ability to change and alter the neuroplasticity when you are younger, 
you still have the ability to work on it when you are older. It just is going to be a little bit more challenging and you have less to work with. Mm-hmm. Yes. So now that we've talked about neuroplasticity and sort of defined it and talked about why it makes treatment effective, let's talk about those more specific treatment modalities. Um, And we'll also touch a little bit on why each one of those is effective as well. One of the most common therapeutic interventions that is widely heard of is called EMDR. And that stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing Therapy. Pretty much when you have a traumatic event, it does not store correctly in your brain. And what EMDR does is it helps you reprocess that memory so it's less disturbing and it's not as intense. And what a therapist will do when they are using EMDR is they will use some kind of device like their hand or um, like a a tone that you listen to, uh, a vibrating device that you're holding onto. Um, Sometimes they can use a light and they will help you use your eye movements to follow their hands or whatever the device is that they're using to help dampen the power of the emotionally charged memory. And it kind of depends on the therapist if they are only using this strictly or if they're incorporating different therapies into it. It isn't for everybody. And I think that it is very successful in a lot of cases, but the therapist that you're going to is certified in EMDR because you have to have a certification in order to do it. And they will assess you like any other therapist would and then kind of decide if you would be an appropriate match for EMDR. And it happens over several sessions. So I know that there is a certain time frame that you do it with and there are certain phases. And I won't get into that because I am not certified in EMDR. So I don't want to give you wrong information. But I know that there is also another therapy called art and that stands for accelerated resolution therapy and it is very similar to emdr it's not as commonly known and i believe that is because it's a little newer Um, but they they both use eye movements in the therapeutic process so emdr has a variable amount of eye movements and art has a fixed number amount. My other understanding is that EMDR uses more free association when you are interacting with your therapist and art is very directive. Um, So they have, art is also supposed to be a shorter amount of time that it works under while EMDR is a little bit longer. So that's just to kind of give you an idea. Uh, you have to also be certified in art, which I am not, so I won't again go into that, but that just kind of gives you like a, a general understanding of those two specific therapies. Yeah, so I am also not certified in EMDR um, or art therapy. Um, I did have an experience with EMDR, somebody using EMDR on me, 
and basically what it looks like when you're in the room um, from my experience is the therapist will have you assuming you know you have a positive relationship with the therapist I think that's really important um, and you've established some coping skills that you can use if you get triggered um, the therapist will have you sort of talk through a certain memory as you're following the light or listening to the beeping sound or holding on to these vibrating things in your hand. And then they'll stop you at a certain point and say, okay, go more down that road. Talk more about that. You know, what thoughts come up, what feelings come up around that very specific instance. Um, or, you know, when so-and-so said this, talk about that specifically. And you kind of repeat that process over and over again. So that's kind of what that looks like. At least that's what one of the phases looks like. So the next one that I will talk about before Jade gets into other therapies is stress inoculation training. And this is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. There are three phases. The first is where the therapist will provide some education on your stress reaction. And that is something that we covered, I believe, in the first episode of this particular series where we talked about what happens in the brain when you're oh yeah when you're um, having a stressful reaction. You'll also kind of briefly explore different thoughts that you have toward the different, stressful situations and you'll kind of explore what you have the ability to change and what you don't have the ability to change in this particular phase the next phase is where you learn coping skills so you know relaxation mindfulness problem solving communication all of the things that would help you be able to kind of cope and manage and calm your stress The next part is the application part. So that's sometimes a therapist can bring the opportunities into the room and it's kind of like an exposure where you're similar to EMDR, where you have these things come up and now the therapist is helping you implement these skills in the moment. But it, it could be through a visualization it could be through actual role play it could be through actually bringing whatever it is in the room but it could also just be your practice now you're practicing it out in the world outside of the office and you're coming back in and talking about how that's working for you this is also something that is a short term but it could be long term too so you could learn this in 8 to 15 sessions but you could also in so technically, you will learn it and then you'll have you know time to kind of keep practicing it, but everybody is different. So you could learn it and be done in three months and then maybe have like a booster session later on, a check-in with your therapist. But some people might need a little bit more time and then they just keep coming in and it might take a little bit longer than that. Yeah, I know that timeline is sort of one of the things that we'll get into later. So another treatment approach is... TFCBT, so that stands for Trauma-Focused Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. I think most of you have probably heard of sort of standard cognitive behavioral therapy. So this is basically just a spin on that that is particular to treating trauma. So 
TFCBT is sort of made up of five different steps or phases, um, you could call them. Uh, the first one is going to be <clears throat> psychoeducation and parenting skills. And actually, before I jump into that, I will say that this is mostly used with kids um, starting around the age of three-ish and probably up to like 18, 19. Um, but it's meant to be used with the client and with the parents or family or caregivers. So the first stage of this is going to be psychoeducation and parenting skills. And this is really just providing education around abuse, around typical behaviors and emotions and responses that you might see, and training the parents in how to respond to these behaviors, respond to these emotions, and how to basically parent around the issues that are coming up around this um, traumatic event. The second stage is going to be relaxation techniques. And this is teaching things like uh, deep breathing, progressive muscle relaxation, guided imagery. Um, and this is for the client and the parent. And so the purpose here is really just to give the client and the family strategies on how to de-escalate themselves and relax when they start to get triggered by something. So the third stage is going to be affective expression and regulation. And this is teaching the child, client, and parents how to manage emotional responses, um, how to basically manage when reminders of abuse are coming up for them and how to effectively identify when those things are coming up and express what's going on around that. The fourth stage is going to be cognitive coping and processing. And that is basically what you think of when you think of traditional CBT probably. So that is linking your thoughts to your feelings to your behaviors and sort of identifying the connection between those and exploring what's happening and how each one is affecting the other. Um, the next stage is trauma narration and processing. And this one is one that is obviously very particular to TFCBT um, as opposed to just standard CBT. So this one, you'll sort of narrate your story of the trauma and that could be done through like writing a story out. It could be telling a story. It could be drawing the story out. Whatever is sort of appropriate for that specific client or for you. Um, and ideally, the stages that have come before this have prepared you for this stage because what you don't want to do is jump into narrating the story or telling the story over and over again when you haven't learned how to de-escalate or to express emotions or know what emotions are coming up for you. Um, so this is, it might take some time to get to this stage. The next stage is in vivo exposure. So in vivo basically means in the environment, like an actual setting that you would experience something in. So this stage is um, incorporating gradual exposure to something that might remind the client of the trauma. So that could be 
a dark room or it could be a classroom or um, something that's specific to that scenario. The next stage is called conjoint parent-child sessions, and that is bringing the child and the parent in together. So up until this point, the child has had sessions with the therapist separate from the parents. And in this stage, you bring the parents and the child together, or the caregivers and the child together. And this is an opportunity for the child to tell their story to the caregiver or the family. And it's also an opportunity for the caregivers and the family to hear the story because they might not have heard the story up until this point. Um, And then the last stage is enhancing personal safety and future growth. So this is more education, more training, more practice on how to maintain safety, how to engage in relationships in a positive way, how to understand relationships, Um, and really how to use those skills in the real world. So there's a lot of stages to this. There's a lot of steps. This one is, in terms of time frame, I've seen 8 to 25 sessions. I've also seen 12 to 16 sessions going up to 25 sessions. So there's no like standard 10 session limit or, or anything like that. But a general rule, I think, would be 8 to 25 sessions. And like I said, the therapist will meet with the child separately and the parent separately up until that stage where both are coming together. Um, But it's a pretty structured treatment approach. So it's different from what I would typically practice. Mine is probably less structured than TFCVT. This is, I think, good in the sense that there's definitely a sort of next stage and a next step and sort of a predictability about it, which I think could be helpful. So the next treatment approach that is used with children is play therapy. And so there's sort of two different types of play therapy. Generally, there's non-directive and directive. And non-directive is pretty much just um, limited sort of direction and structure and allowing the child to play in a safe environment and directive is going to be incorporating play in a way where the therapist gives more direction and um, sort of suggests certain next steps within the play and this is helpful because play is basically an age-appropriate way for a child to express and process what is going on for them in a similar way that adults might go to a friend and talk something through. This is basically a child's way of talking something out. And then the last treatment approach that I'll go over is neurobiofeedback. I always have to say that slowly because I stumble over the word. So neurobiofeedback is sort of under the umbrella of biofeedback, which is basically the feedback that your body is giving you, that your biology is giving you. So we're talking about temperature, heart rate, um, muscle contractions, things like that. So in neurobiofeedback, a trained therapist will hook you up to some sensors um, in on sort of like particular parts of your head, and then they will have you simultaneously watch a movie or a show or listen to music or play a video game and 
this sort of program basically analyzes your brain waves and when your brain is sort of doing the right thing so to speak the show that you're watching will get brighter or the music that you're listening to will get louder or there will be some sort of positive reinforcement it could be that your video game continues and you get points and then when your brain does something that this program says is sort of not right the show might get darker or the music will go away so basically what it does is it sort of trains your brain to say like hey i really liked that thing where did it go i must need to do this this other thing Mm -hmm. yeah and actually something i want to add to that is you don't have to be a therapist in order to do that there are places that you can go that offer neurofeedback i've seen it offered a lot in chiropractors offices because it's not you have to be trained in order to do it but you you don't have to be a therapist in order to do it because you're not doing talk therapy it's just it's kind of like a memory brain kind of game if you will that helps your brain be able to Um, generally kind of just working to the best of its possible ability. So it helps with anxiety and depression and symptoms, but it doesn't help with reprocessing the trauma. Yes. So this is, I think, a really good example of where we can sort of see neuroplasticity happening. Not that you can visually see it, but in the other treatment approaches that we talked about, there might be more talk happening or there might be a sort of direct look at an event or things that are bothering you whereas this is sort of a direct connection to your brain connections and getting your brain to build those new connections um, in a way that it then knows how to regulate itself better or has new pathways for responding to stimuli but i'm glad that you said that it it doesn't really treat the underlying issue, really. It sort of gives you new ways of coping in order to use a different approach to, to treat that underlying issue. So it's a really good adjunct to therapy. It can be. But I, I think, too, something that I want to add is no matter what, what kind of form or theory or approach that a therapist is using, there are normally three phases of recovering from trauma. The first is safety and stabilization. So basically what that means is whatever therapist you're going to is going to help you be able to recognize the symptoms, understand why they're there, what your triggers are, understand what your thoughts are because of what's going on and how to establish getting to a place where you're feeling more comfortable and stable. So understanding that part. The second part is, well, and in that stage, I'm sorry, let me go back, learning how to cope, Mm -hmm. basically. The second part is processing and coming to terms with those memories. So it could be It could be that you're talking about them, but this could also be something like EMDR, where this is where you would use one of the treatments that we were talking about. So you wouldn't use that in the first part, you would use it in the second part. Whatever it is, it's gonna help you process it and become unstuck, if you will. The third phase is kind of integrating all of the stuff that you've learned, maintaining all of the progress that you've made and learning how to kind of move forward and what to do if you relapse or kind of move backward. So those are like the three 
that's the foundation I think of any of the work. So no matter what you're using, a therapist that understands trauma and is trained in trauma will be going through those three phases. And it, it doesn't really matter what they're using as long as they're helping you stabilize, helping you process it, and then helping you move on. So now that we've kind of explained the different approaches and just the structure of therapy, me and Jade want to talk a little bit about what our thoughts are and opinions on treatment are and different approaches, maybe the approaches that we use and why we use them. So I know we had mentioned that neither one of us use EMDR or ART. And then I know Jade had said that she doesn't do trauma-focused therapy specifically. I I don't use this, the structure specifically. I think I definitely use pieces of these different things and Jade mm-hmm. shaking her head. So I think she probably does too. Um, and I, the reason I do that is because I know that everybody is different and everybody needs different things. So when I'm going to be in a room with somebody and I'm assessing them, I'm going to kind of decide what I think is going to work best for them. And I'm going to use different pieces. So I haven't been trained in EMDR or art. While I think it can be helpful for certain people, it doesn't necessarily feel like something that fits with my style. I'm definitely interested in learning more about it and I see how it could be beneficial and maybe down the road it might be something I include in my practice, but for right now it isn't something that I include. With that being said, I definitely use stress inoculation and I definitely use pieces of trauma-focused CBT. Mm-hmm. I'm not certified in it, I don't do like the strict, but I do use pieces of it. And um, I definitely use a lot of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that those were, oh, and I do play. I do play. I think that that's kind of a standard when you're working with yeah. little kids. I totally agree with you. I am not certified or trained in EMDR. Um, and I, I think that for me, if an approach is too structured, I'm not super comfortable with the sort of, limitation that that has on you know I often have clients who come in with new sort of updates that they want to talk about and I feel like those are relevant and an approach that is too structured doesn't really allow me to to dive into that with the client and in my experience I've found that sort of updates that come up for the client really are relevant in these issues that they're coming up with that are related to the trauma that is sort of the big picture that we're looking at. So that's why for me, I choose sort of a more flexible approach. I know that you will come across therapists who say, no, you need to follow the TFCBT structure the way that it's laid out. And I think that's great if that works for them, for my own sort of personality and what feels natural for me a more flexible approach is what works well for me and the clients that choose to come see me I'm with you on that yeah for some people that structure works perfect and I've had people come to me and ask me you know do you do strict CBT and I'll explain to them I definitely use a lot of pieces but I don't Mm -hmm. do strict because if anybody is familiar with what strict looks like it's you walk into the therapist's office and they have an agenda. So you sit and you you ask the person that's coming in 
you know, you review your last session, you ask them what it is that they want to talk about, and you kind of discuss what, what you're wanting to talk about based on the last session, and you kind of have this agenda, and then you have, you do what the agenda is, and then at the end there's homework, and you can't really stray from that. Anytime you start straying from it, so if a client is saying, you know, I have this update, the therapist will have to keep them on track. And so if that is something that a client who is wanting support, if that sounds like it would really help to have that structure, then you would want to go to a therapist that, that that also fits with and that feels really good to them. But for for me, I do like to be a little flexible. So I do, I agree with Jade. I think that those updates are really important and sometimes they take more precedent um, depending on what the update is than what we were talking about the week mm -hmm. before. So it kind of just, it just depends. So you're going to want as the client to make sure that you're going to a therapist that's going to be able to give you what it is you're needing. So if you're wanting that structure, then you would need to find somebody who just does that particular mm -hmm. approach. Yeah, definitely. And that's, again, we've talked about this in previous episodes. I think that's sort of the beauty of having therapists with different approaches is that if that's not the approach that works for you, that's totally fine. There's a therapist who will sort of have the approach that you're looking for, whether it's more structured or more flexible. I also use play therapy quite a bit. I use mostly non-directive play therapy, but I do incorporate some direct play therapy as well. And I think that is sort of particular to the goals of the client and the client themselves. I think some kids are more responsive to direct play therapy and some are more responsive to non-direct. So I'm pretty flexible there as well. Uh, yeah, and I think that uh, stress inoculation therapy is definitely a, uh, it's something I think Alice and I talked about how we used, but don't really realize that we're always using it. It's just sort of a, a natural thing that we do with clients, both of us. Yeah, that mind-body connection, I think, is really important, and that kind of is the basis of what that is. You know, you're teaching what's going on in your brain and your body and trying to build that mindfulness, that mm -hmm. awareness, and then learning what coping skills work for you and then applying mm -hmm. it and building that new pathway. Yeah. So I think for each specific therapy, they do have a certain number of sessions that it typically, on average, that's how long it would take for you to learn or go through it. But I think if you look, if you go back to what we were just talking about with the three different phases, that first phase isn't normally included in that, right? It's just the, the actual processing part. So if something says it's going to take about three months, it might for some people. It just depends on how long it takes them to get to that place where they're feeling stable and they can go to that other piece. Some people, it takes years for them to get to that place. Other people, it only takes a couple months. So I think it kind of just depends on the person. And I think that's why it's so difficult when you when you hear that it takes a certain amount of time or when an insurance company approves a certain amount of sessions. They're, they're basing it on this evidence-based um, approach that it's only going to take this certain amount of time. But everybody is so different that it, it really just depends. Yeah. And I think that that also speaks to our sort of flexible approach to therapy that I've, I've had clients say, well, 
you know, what is a standard treatment timeline? And I'm like, well, it depends, right? It depends on what you're sort of willing to get into and when and how much effort you're putting into managing this outside of our time together. I think there's, for me, a lot of factors that play into it. I will say in my experience, I have noticed that within the first two to three months, if you're coming on a weekly basis, most people notice some kind of shift, whether that means that they're going in the right direction, they've made some changes, they see progress, and they still need to keep continuing on, or that means Mm -hmm. you're done. It kind of just depends. But that is normally that kind of sweet spot that I've noticed people making shifts in. Yeah. And you said something earlier, too, that there's this sort of interesting, and I've had another therapist tell me the same thing, and I see it in my own practice, where there's this sort of like two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back, and so navigating that as well. So again, for us, I think the timeline is more flexible. Other therapists might say, nope, this is the amount of sessions that it is, and this is what we have to work with. So it kind of depends on the therapist that you're talking to, but it sounds like for Alice and I, we agree on the sort of flexible timeline approach. I mean, there are some therapists too out there that I think maybe more psychodynamic that are, you know, you have to come this many times a week and we're just going to keep going. We're just going to keep doing it. Um, So I think too, that is an option if that is something that maybe fits better with what your goals are and what you're wanting out of therapy. It's everybody is, is just so different. And that's why we have so many different options because you get to decide like what's going to work mm-hmm. best for you. Yeah. It just so happens that me and Jade are similar in that respect, which is probably why we decided to do the podcast together. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> probably. <laughs> it would be hard to do a podcast. I think if we were on like opposite ends of the spectrum, although it would provide some alternative perspective it would it might actually be interesting yeah maybe we could have a guest on in future episodes who has a different super different yeah yeah different perspective and then you guys can all see how we communicate too when we're put in maybe (laughs) uncomfortable situations (laughs) so speaking of what works for you we wanted to talk about things that you could do on your own too So I know that this is something that we got into in episode two of this series. Um, And we talked about sort of identifying patterns and being able to get a better idea of what comes up for you that is sort of personal to you versus what is more related to an external situation or environment that you're in. But we sort of realized that Maybe when we talked about it, we made it sound sort of easy to do, you know, just identify your patterns and la-di-da. And in reality, it, it is more difficult than that. And I don't think that we can really get into the depth of it in this episode either, but we did want to touch on it again and add some additional sort of tips or things that you could try. So we've talked about mindfulness in the way that it's used in therapy And again, I would highly encourage you to seek out somebody who can guide you through this in a way that will be safe for you to do on your own. But I also realize that not everybody will do that or take that advice. So that being said, mindfulness, probably something that you've all heard of. Um, It's basically being able to sort of tune into your body 
So we're talking about, I mean, on a basic level, we're talking about like deep breathing, just taking some time, taking a few deep breaths, trying to notice what's happening in your body, whether it's um, shaky hands, if your palms are sweaty, if you're noticing, hey, when I talk to this person or go to this place, I always feel a throbbing in my head or I always feel like I get butterflies in my stomach or my stomach feels like it's in knots. Just noticing things like that is going to be mindfulness. Mindfulness in a way that is helpful with regards to overcoming certain things. I think that's going to be something that has to be more of a consistent practice, right? Taking the time out of your day or a few times a week to sit in a calming space and sort of recenter yourself. So take some deep breaths, focus really on your present experience, your current sort of feelings in your body, and really just bringing yourself into that present moment. Something that's coming up for me when you're talking about this is something that you talked about earlier when we were talking about neuroplasticity, how you said, um, you know, going the way that you normally go on autopilot or changing the way that you're going when you're driving and doing a different way. That is, is in a sense, very similar to mindfulness because if you're on autopilot, you're not really being mindful. So if mm-hmm. you even just take more of an awareness about what you're doing. So Mm -hmm. driving and just being aware, eating and paying attention. I mean, I know so many of you so busy that sometimes when you're eating, we even maybe talked about this in another episode where you're just kind of shoving food into your mouth while you're at work and you're just kind of like working at the same time. Mindful eating would be actually noticing that you're eating and you're enjoying it and you're Mm -hmm. tasting it and you're paying attention to when you're full and when you're hungry. So it's just being aware. Yeah. And I love that you brought that up because mindful eating is something that I really love to do, especially with my younger clients and they get so into it. I mean, how often do you really sit down and take a bite of an apple or an orange and really pay attention to how it feels on your teeth, how the juice sort of comes out of the orange or maybe the graininess of the apple? Just noticing those small things is going to be mindful eating and it's going to bring you into the present moment and sort of help your body and brain recenter. Now, I'm glad you also brought up neuroplasticity because mindfulness is not something that you do once and you know how to do perfectly, right? It takes practice. Our minds are typically going in 10 million directions. And so when you sit down, you'll probably start thinking about groceries that you need to get or how you didn't work out that morning or things that you need to do to prep for the next day or whatever else is on your mind. So It really does take practice to say, okay, I notice that my thoughts are going in this other direction. That's okay. I'm going to bring them back to this present moment. And consistently doing that until your brain forms the connections and is able to say, oh, right now we're doing some mindfulness. We're going to stay focused. And your brain doesn't immediately want to wander off into a million places. That's why when you try something once and it doesn't work, it needs to be something that you try for a good amount of time before you decide it doesn't work because you're 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 needing to practice that new habit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to take a mindfulness course, and I remember when I started it, I was like, I cannot sit still. 
I cannot focus for this long. I mean, and it was like 20 seconds. I was struggling to just stay focused for 20 seconds. Um, but over the course of this class that I was taking, you really do sort of notice those shifts. So I would encourage you to not give up and say, oh, mindfulness isn't for me. I can't stay focused. I can't do it because it really does take training your brain and teaching it this sort of new activity that you're wanting to do. Um, and your mindfulness might look different from someone else's mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So I think it kind of just depends on who you are. Everybody has a different approach mm -hmm. that helps them be aware that works for them. But mm -hmm. definitely practice is what's going to help your brain be able to make it work for you. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked about mindful eating. You can do mindful walking, um, mindful breathing. There's sort of different, anything that you're doing, you can sort of turn into a mindfulness activity. Um, another one that we wanted to talk about was thought tracking. So I think that this is very similar to what we talked about in terms of noticing your patterns. And this is something that I'll do with my clients that's a little bit more CBT in that if you notice that you're struggling in a certain area, I encourage my clients to keep a thought record or a log of, okay, this is a situation that happened. You know, I was supposed to meet this person and they didn't show up. Okay, this is the reaction that I had to it. I got really upset and I angrily texted them and started yelling at them. This is the emotion that I was feeling. I was feeling angry. I was feeling betrayed, whatever it is that's coming up for you. And then to think of a possible alternative. Okay, maybe they got stuck in traffic. Maybe they had an emergency come up that I didn't know about and they didn't have time to text me and let me know that they couldn't show up. So to sort of keep track of these different events that are coming up for you and your responses around them and your reactions and to see then if you notice any patterns. Because I do think that it's difficult to try and think back on situations and think, okay, what were the patterns or the common denominators in all of those situations? I think it's easier to sort of lay it out and maybe have something that you can look back on and say, oh yeah, I, I did get angry in that situation. This was my immediate thought that I had about that situation and to have a sort of written record that you can reflect on. And if you're seeing a therapist that does CBT, that is going to be something that they're going to want to see. And that's mm -hmm. going to be something that they're going to be working with you on anyway. Yeah. And I sort of alter what is included on these logs when I work with clients. So I sort of change them up based on what might be important for that client to look at. And this is something that you can do for yourself. Is it the specific thoughts that are coming up that you want to look at? Is it um, feelings in your body that are coming up that you really want to focus on? Whatever it is that you want your focus to be on, that is what I would encourage you to put in your, in your log or in your journal, wherever you want to keep it. So the next thing that we wanted to include was yoga or dance or some kind of movement. And I know a lot of people will say, you know, well, exercise isn't for me. That's, it's not my thing. And that's totally fine. But I want to kind of talk about why it can be helpful. 
One of the things that I think is not common knowledge is that the reason why some of these anti-anxiety medicines work is because it affects your neurotransmitter levels. And I think one of them specifically, I think is GABA. I won't get into that because that might be a little too scientific and technical, but yoga and dance and movement, it affects those levels naturally. So I think that is why it is a really good thing to be practicing on your own because it can help you manage anxiety and manage depression on a level that doesn't include medicine, but it's still affecting your neurotransmitters. And if you enjoy it, you're also getting dopamine, right? That feel good chemical that's in your body. The other thing too, with maybe yoga and dance more specifically, is that it helps you build that mindfulness and that mind body connection in a different way because you're moving while you're doing it. So it, it helps you with the awareness a little bit more than it would if you weren't doing that physical part. The other thing that it can do too is it could build a sense of safety in your body because you are doing something that's kind of calming you down. And if you are somebody who sometimes has a hard time being in touch with your body, this is going to help you be more aware of it because you have to be paying attention mm -hmm. when you're doing both of these things to where your body is placed. Um, so it, it, it helps you build awareness and it helps you build more trust in your body too, which are really important when you're trying to get to that place where you're wanting to feel more comfortable and you're wanting to feel, um, a little bit more calm and, and work through some of these intense feelings. Now music, they actually have studies that it affects your dopamine levels when you're listening to it. And so it could help you get into a different mood when you're listening to it, especially if you can listen to the lyrics and the lyrics really speak to you. Sometimes that helps us not feel as alone because they get us, um, mm -hmm. the person who's singing, they get it. Um, so listening to music is a really good one too. Yeah. I think that when you're dancing or when you're listening to music, not only are you having that sort of mind body connection enhanced, but there's also something that is rhythmically soothing to the mind and the body. And I think that that helps our brains understand how to regulate a little better. There's something about, um, like I said, the rhythm and actually Allison and I went to a conference not too long Last ago. Year. Yeah. And the trainer was talking about lullabies and how the beat of lullabies is generally the same rhythm as a mother's heartbeat, which is really soothing to a baby. So if you think about it that way, music and sort of the beat of dancing really does have this natural soothing, calming effect on our brains and bodies. The other thing too is if you are somebody who is hyper aware of your surroundings, you're going to be a lot more tense for reasons that we talked about in previous episodes. And so if you are enhancing that mind-body connection through music or yoga or dance or any kind of physical activity, it can help calm your body down and it can help relieve some of that tension. Oh yeah, definitely. Stretching and yeah, movement is so good for that. If you're someone who doesn't like doing those things, even just a simple walk, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and that entails so much too, right? Like getting outside and the benefits that come with being in nature. So with all of that being said, I know that this was probably a lot of information, but I think what it really comes down to is that there are many different ways that we can approach trauma and treating trauma. And it's all sort of possible, like we said at the beginning, because our brains have this neuroplasticity ability, right? That they can they can shift and they can learn new things. And so whether it be you're working with a therapist or you're doing some of these things on your own, those are all ways that you're teaching your brain new ways of managing and of dealing with these things. I realize that it's easier said than done. And just to realize that managing trauma is, it's not an easy task. It's, it's hard. It brings up a lot of stuff. It's intense, to be honest. It's a really difficult process. So just to keep that in mind that I, I know that we're talking about all of this on this podcast and it sounds simple, but that in practice, it really entails a lot. It's a lot easier said than done. And I think that one of the things that me and Jade had talked about and why we wanted to do this, this third part is because sometimes when you read up on stuff or you hear people talking about different things or you're listening to your therapist or you're, you know, just doing research and it seems like it's so easy and sometimes we can kind of get on ourselves because it's not working for us or we can, you know, say, oh, that's not for me. I don't really want to do that. Um, if you have that understanding of on why it works and kind of it helps mm-hmm. you piece it together a little bit more and it gives you a little bit more information so you can kind of decide what you do want to try and why it might be a good thing to try for you and so not knowledge is power so we kind of just thought that doing this third episode and explaining yes. in general why some of this stuff is really helpful and why it can work um, would maybe make it seem like it is a little bit more challenging and give you a little bit more of a break. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, just to bring some more sort of reality to the topic and um, understanding of why it is difficult and how it can be difficult, but also sort of the positive side of it and why it can be sort of overcome, so to speak. And when I say overcome or accept or manage, I want to bring some reality to that too. And that dealing with it and managing it and getting treatment for it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll come out of that treatment and feel great about it, right? You're, you probably won't think about that event and think, it's totally fine. You know, it's all good. But you can live a more full life. You can manage it in a way that feels better to you. It's not going to be as intense. You're uh-huh. never going to look back on it and think like that happened. It was cool. It's, it's gonna, you're going to have feelings about it that maybe are distressing, but they're not going to be as intense. So it's going to be a lot easier for you to manage it and have it not impact your day-to-day life on an, in a negative way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So that I think wraps up the information that we have in terms of understanding trauma. I know that we still have a couple tips for your day and quick ways to improve your day. So Allison, do you want to go first and we can jump into those? Sure. Uh, My tip is it kind of has a little bit about uh, 
to do about what we talked about. I think that if you can incorporate music and listen to music, maybe while you're getting ready for the day or you're getting ready to go to bed or maybe when you're in your car, listen to music and kind of maybe give you some, a little, a little bit of happiness, maybe make some of those dopamine chemicals increase. Yeah. And we were just talking about how music is so helpful too. So it's a good one. My tip is to make your bed in the morning. I think that this is so simple, but there's just something about having that one thing in place, right? If you had a chaotic day, I think it could feel really nice to come home and know, okay, I made my bed at the start of the day and I'm coming home to something that looks clean and in place. So that's my tip. Make your bed and see how it changes your day. Okay, if anybody has any other questions around trauma or anything that maybe we didn't get to that you were hoping we got to, please feel free to leave us a comment. You can now subscribe to our podcast on CastBox and then you'll get notified of new episodes that come out. And just as a reminder, we are now releasing every other week instead of every week. So stay tuned. We're still here um, and we'll be chatting with you every other week now. I think if there are kind of like me and Jed decided that there, it would be helpful to have a, a third episode, a third part to this. So if we get enough feedback, we might have a, a 9.4. So <laughs> this could turn into a trauma podcast. Yeah, it could. But, but for now, we will see you later. 